0: So today we continue in an expositional series on the book of 2 Corinthians, which is a New Testament letter written under the inspiration of the Spirit by the Apostle Paul. We have been in this series since this past September, and the series is titled, Weak is Strong. And we are discovering, I think, that this is one of the most surprising, one of the most counterintuitive books of the entire New Testament because it just has this way of kind of reaching down and playing with your mind. You know, reaching down and playing with your category where themes like weakness and strength and glory and shame and suffering and blessing and humility and power all get thrown up into the air and redefined for us. And so we just end up walking away from what we read in this book, thinking about success differently, thinking about strength differently, thinking about the gospel differently, even thinking about the Apostle Paul differently. And so we've, uh, we've marched through nine chapters, and we begin chapter 10 this morning. So 2 Corinthians chapter 10, only six verses, verses 1 through 6. Title of this morning's message is, Soft words and the big stick. Soft words and the big stick. Verse 1. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. I don't know about you, but I I feel like I need God this morning. I know that we all need God to be able to hear his word. So let's go to him and let's ask for his help together. Lord, your word is never trivial, it is never inconsequential, it is never irrelevant. Lord, it is something that that we desperately need, it is something that is eternal, it is something that is supernatural. And we realize that as as we stand, as we sit here today and we open your word that this is a moment of great significance for our life. But we pray that you would help our brain connect with your truth and that you would move through our will to our affections and ignite our passions afresh with the truth of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Start with a question this morning. Here's the question. What comes to your mind when you hear the phrase character assassination? What comes to your mind when you hear that phrase? Certainly a relevant question right now is, the gloves are clearly off in this presidential, these presidential primaries and everything appears to be a legitimate target for any of the candidates. One might say character assassination is just another word for American politics during an election cycle. And in the event you believe that somehow 2016 has kind of ushered in a new low in politics, I was reading this past week a little bit about Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln, I mean, widely regarded as one of the most successful and effective presidents in American history. And these, kind, these are the kind of things that were being written about him while he was president. This first one comes from... George Strong, he was a New York lawyer and a writer. While he was president, he said about Lincoln, quote, he's either a barbarian, a Scythian, a Yahoo, or a gorilla. George McClellan, one of his own commanding generals, said this while he was the general of his army. He called him, quote, a coward, an idiot, and the original gorilla. I assume the gorilla phrase was a reference to to Lincoln's hairy face, his kind of hulking frame. Next comes from Senator Zachary Chandler, who, by the way, was a member of Lincoln's own party, and he said of him, again, while he was a part of his party and he was his president, that he is, quote, timid, vacillating, and inefficient, you have to remember that this is Lincoln's own party. This is his supporters. Lincoln, by the way, just come under came under scathing criticisms and unending, unrelenting abuse and attacks from both sides, both while he was running and while he was president. Upon delivering the Gettysburg Address, which, again, is a speech that is memorized to this day by school students, it was a Pennsylvania newspaper that reported on the address a little few days later by saying, quote, We pass over the silly remarks of the president. For the credit of the nation, we are willing that the veil of oblivion shall be dropped over them, and they shall be no more thought of or repeated. Talk about adventures and missing the journalistic moment. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that these character attacks just appear to be, well, they're they're the cost of leadership, aren't they? Because the best leaders are those that make strong decisions. And strong decisions incite deep passions in people. And when deep passions run without the guardrails of character or love, people attack. Fools attack. And for the leader who may think that somehow his or her sincerity or their charisma is going to protect them, well, it just opens up a world of pain coming from a never-ending parade of stupid In fact, at one point, Lincoln felt so abused while people were talking about him from his party, while while he was president, he said, quote, I would rather be a dead man than, as president, be thus abused in the house of my friend. You know, it's a defining moment when a leader finally realizes that criticism is a cross upon which they must consent to be impaled. And that is exactly where we find Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul is the object of accusation. His character is under attack. He is is being impaled once again upon the cross of criticism. And of course, we, we know because we've studied this in the past that his attackers, these criticisms, come from these intruders, In fact, we're coming to a place in chapter 11, verse 6, where Paul's going to call them super apostles. They're not just apostles, they are super apostles, or at least that's what they think about themselves. Their fundamental aim is to undermine Paul and win the Corinthians over to themselves. In fact, to put it in the context of where every leader, every parent, every business owner here might understand. They represent forces. These super apostles represent forces over which Paul has no direct control, and they are intentionally seeking to undermine his work, the work of his life. They are dedicated to undermining that work. I wonder how many of you can relate to that. Because every leader here, every parent here, every student here, every nurse here, has their own kinds of super apostles in their life. I don't get the working of God, but it just seems like it pleases God for some reason to always have some form of these super apostles in our life. In other words, voices that target what we love and seek to separate them from us through seduction, through wooing them away, and that's exactly what's happening in Corinth. And so in writing 2 Corinthians, Paul is now in chapter 10 clarifying the charges, these trumped-up charges that these intruders, these super apostles have laid at his feet, these trumped-up charges. He's clarifying what they are, and he's explaining why they are wrong by offering a kind of defense. These are not the only charges, but these are the ones that appear in these first six verses. So there's two basic Charges that emerge. <clears throat> the first one is, and I'm gonna say it this way, they're saying about Paul that his bark is worse than his bite. That his bark is worse than his bite. And then secondly, they're gonna say of Paul that he is, and this is my phrase, he's a flesh walker, that Paul is a fleshwalker. And I'll explain what that means in just a second, but let's go to the first one. That Paul's bark is worse than his bite. So now remember, let's remember the context here, because it's really important to roll this back into the context where we won't understand the significance of where Paul is going. So here we are in Corinth. If you ask the Corinthians, how do you define success? What is most important to you as being successful in the world in which you live? The average Corinthian would point to clever words, eloquent speech. That was their view of wisdom and the Corinthians loved wisdom. This is why Paul started out in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in the early section he started out by saying, quote, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe, for Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. So in the Corinthian world, in the Greek world, wisdom was what everybody aspired to, but wisdom was not just this intellectual pursuit, but wisdom was more of a worldview. Wisdom was this value that they celebrated that had to do with intelligence and eloquence, so this meant that the cultural superstars were not the, the Hollywood celebrities. They weren't the sports heroes, but they were the teachers and the scribes and the debaters and the lawyers, those with sparkling rhetoric, those with these kinds of audacious self-references, which, which Paul calls boasting. That's why that term boasting comes up so often in First and Second Corinthians. The intellectual elite, that was the celebrities in Corinth, and it was they that symbolized strength. It was they that defined success. It's what the Corinthians valued, and it's what the super apostles represented. It's it's who the opponents were. And so what's happening now is that in contrast to these Self-important boasters, the, the self-advertising that these intruders do each and every week. nobody knows what to do with Paul, because Paul comes to them in meekness, which is where this chapter started in verse 10, chapter one, chapter 10, verse one. I, Paul myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And then it goes on to say, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, exclamation point. By the way, that's not a Paul's self-assessment. He's not saying, this is kind of how I, I, I roll. That was the charge that the super apostles had said about Paul. So he's citing them when he says that. He's being faulted for being too weak when he's face to face and only bold when he's away. In other words, he just sits in front of his computer and courageously blogs it in. Which is just another way to say his bark is worse than his bite. But that's not all because there's a more complex issue at play here as well. And let me me raise it with you by asking you a question. Have you ever been in a situation where your attempts to be humble, are used against you. You know, maybe there's an accusation or there's somebody accusing you, but you don't respond to your accuser because you want to take a higher road. You want to be meek. But then your accuser claims that your silence constitutes your guilt and you're vulnerable. Or maybe you humble yourself to acknowledge something that you are genuinely convicted of, and you acknowledge it, but you find out that the person that you're acknowledging it to actually has their own convictions about your sin. Not convictions about their own sin, but they have convictions about your sin. And so they start adding, you know, riders to the bill of your confession. You know what I mean by that? You know, the rider is the attempt of the hearer to attach additional guilt to the bill of your confession. And so you, co- you go to somebody and you're saying, you know what, I have been praying and I have felt convicted by the Holy Spirit that I did number one. And they say, well, wait a minute. You didn't just do number one, but you did number two, number three, and number four. And you say, well, you know what? That may be true, and may God convict me of that. But I know I did number one. I see number one. I'm convicted about number one. And they're saying, don't come to me with number one, because unless you're willing to admit number two, three, and four, I don't even want to hear about number one. So rather than your confession provoking their self examination, rather than your confession provoking their forgiveness, it actually becomes something that separates you all the more. One of the greatest challenges for the Christian is to come to terms with the reality that humility is ultimately something we do for God. It's not something we do for men, it's not something we do for women. It's not something we, we do for our spouse. I mean, ultimately, yes, it can be an expression of love, but ultimately, humility is something we do for God, lest humility become some kind of transaction that we begin to engage in where we purchase certain outcomes from God because we humble ourselves in a situation. And we begin making these bargains with God. Lord, if I humble myself, then I know you will turn my business around. Lord, if I humble myself, then I know my child will begin to act in the way that I think is more appropriate. If, you humble, if I humble myself before you, then my friend will finally see the ways that they have wronged me. When in reality, in a fallen world, it doesn't roll that way. In fact, in a fallen world, most often, the people that are most humble are often the most Misunderstood. The people that are the most humble are oftentimes the people that are most persecuted and sometimes prosecuted. In other words, those that see and confess can become the focal point, and those that can effectively deny and lie can look better before men, and that having a conscience can actually be a tripping point, and that's why... You have to define success before God because sometimes in the natural and here on earth, humility can allow you to take a hit. But we have to always remember that that experience, when we have that happen, it fixes us at the center of the gospel experience. We have to remember that we follow a Savior who came from heaven, the perfect man, who perfectly obeyed all of God's laws, blamelessly perfectly upheld them, and as a result of doing that, he was ridiculed. As a result of doing that, he was charged by men for his humble acts and ultimately stapled to a tree, that nobody understood the humility, nobody understood the weakness, that ultimately it was used against him, and yet he lives and exists in great glory now for that road in which he walked. And so when Paul opens chapter 10 by talking about the meekness and gentleness of Christ, he does so because that describes his approach. That describes his attitude. Because the Corinthians are exploiting his humility, and the Corinthians don't understand that he's actually doing this intentionally because the super apostles are saying, you see his meekness, you see his cowardliness, you see his weakness, his bark is worse than his bite. So that's the first charge that's coming at him that he has to speak to. The second is similar, but also shaded a little differently, and that is that Paul is a flesh walker. Look at verse 2. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Now this charge is a little more direct. In fact, this charge is a little more direct towards a character assassination. Because to walk according to the flesh means to be, ento- means, means to be controlled entirely by sinful desires, sinful motivations, a corrupt heart. What they're doing here is they're basically ascribing evil self-interest to Paul and saying he is driven by the fruits of the flesh, not the fruits of the Spirit, that this dude is primarily about greed and lust and pride. He walks according to the flesh. That's the charge. Now, this is not the first sighting of this charge, but he's addressing it again now in chapter 10. But there's another facet of this as well. It kind of goes in a slightly different direction, although it's kind of a a derivative. And part of the reason why I'm having to be careful with language here is because some of these are somewhat nuanced. So there's another facet of this where being a flesh walker is a way for them to say about Paul that Paul is incredibly ordinary. Paul is incredibly insignificant when it comes to the things that mean the most to us. Again, this is the super apostles talking. This is the intruders. This, these are his opponents. And they knew that would play well in Corinth because the Corinthians only, expect, only uh, loved and appreciated and respected that which was extraordinary. They wanted to see extraordinary gifts. They wanted to see extraordinary abilities. Ultimately, they want to hear from, from the super apostles their extraordinary experiences with God, which why ultimately... Paul has to, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, talk about how he knows a man who went to the third heaven. Because he says, hey, actually, I do have some of this kind of stuff. I just don't like to talk about it, so even when I talk about it, I'll talk about a man and not myself. So they've already smeared Paul in a number of ways. Remember back in chapter 3, they've said, oh, this guy has no letters of recommendation. They're talking about Paul, no letters of commendation whatsoever, which were the true credentials of the day. The best best way to portray that you have prestige within the culture was to circle around as a teacher with letters of commendation. In chapter 10, verse 10, they're going to say his best games are in his letter, but have you seen his bodily appearance? We're going to study this next week. His bodily appearance is really unimpressive. He's rather weak. He's unimpressive. In chapter 11, verse 5, they're going to say his preaching is substandard. In chapter 12, Paul is going to address once again this idea that he has absolutely no supernatural credentials, which again was another charge being brought against him. All of that is a way to say this man was a flesh walker. This man was unimpressive. You check out the SATs on this guy, you'll be unimpressed. Check out his IQ, nothing to speak of. He is common, he is pedestrian, he is unremarkable. Paul is weak. That's the gist of the charge. So to these charges, his bark is worse than his bite, he is a flesh walker, Paul basically comes out with one central idea. And this is is the way I want to summarize this idea to you. Paul says, I speak softly and carry a big stick. I speak softly and carry a big stick. Is that a familiar phrase to you at all? 1901, Theodore Roosevelt, Minnesota State Fair. He rolls out this phrase uh, that ultimately ended up representing the cornerstone of his foreign policy. Teddy Roosevelt said, T-Rex himself said, I, we will walk small as a nation and we will carry a big Stick. eventually it became known as Big Stick Diplomacy. That was Teddy Roosevelt's diplomacy. In other words, the idea behind that is we will, in approaching other nations, for, it was foreign policy, we will, in approaching other nations, we will negotiate humbly. We will negotiate peacefully. We will approach meekly, but we will let them know that we have overwhelming firepower and we are not afraid to use it. And he did so in Venezuela. He did so in the building of the... Panama Canal. And I honestly couldn't think of a better summary for what Paul is saying here than that phrase, speak softly and carry a big stick. So let's talk about speaking softly for a second. I've already alluded to this. Let me speak to it more directly. Paul opens by entreating them by the meekness and gentleness of Jesus Christ. Now again, you know, we're working with Paul here. Paul could have come at them with his authority as an apostle who saw Jesus. He could have come at them with the power that he has. He could have come at them with the fact that he walked the Damascus Road and he saw Jesus himself. But when Paul was working with the Corinthians, the charge that's being made against him is a charge that he is willing to accept, and that is that he's meek just like Jesus. He spoke meekly. Now, that's a word that doesn't appear very often in the New Testament. It's just a few times it, it really pops up, meekness. The, the original Greek word means it's an absence of inner turmoil or inner conflict. It, it specifically relates to the way we respond when we are falsely accused, the way we respond when we are unjustly criticized. Meekness is speaking Softly, when we are misunderstood. Speaking softly, when we are teased or scorned. Being meek is having a soul that is at peace. One of the best Old Testament pictures of it is found in Proverbs chapter 15, where where it says, the soft answer will turn away wrath. So here you're in a situation where you have a relative, you have a friend, maybe it's a child, maybe it's a parent, but you're in one. maybe it's at work. You have one of these bizarre situations where you have somebody coming at you with wrath. I mean, you know, wrath is like anger on steroids. Wrath is like anger times 10. So you're in this situation, and they're coming at you, and they are in your face. And what Scripture is saying is that There's something about the way a person can be. There's a peace, there's an inner place that they can be at of meekness where they can respond to that wrath with a soft answer. And a soft answer has the power to turn away wrath. That's the power of meekness. So, Paul, to, to, to this charge of flesh walking, that Paul is meek, Another way to say it is Paul. Paul has been viewed as ordinary. He's this mundane guy. He's unimpressive in body. He's unimpressive when he speaks. Paul, you know, Paul basically defends himself by saying, "Yeah, yeah, I know, I am. Yeah, it's true." In fact, he says, "You think I'm weak? Ha, you don't know how weak I really am. I'm gloriously weak." And then he writes the entire book of Second Corinthians, and throughout this book, he's talking about things like my anxiety. My brokenness, my affliction in Asia, which just sent me to a dark place. My my weakness is the place that I glory in grace and I experience Christ. I'm a dependent man. So he's basically saying, this is his defense. I'm not like you, Mr. Super Apostle. I'm not boastful. I'm not self-confident. I'm not worldly wise. I'm not pretentious. I don't present well. Because I've been afflicted. I feel pressure. I experience anxiety. You want me to boast? That's my story. I speak softly. Now, I want to come back to this idea of speaking softly in just a second. I want to apply that a little bit to our life, but let's just move on to the text so we understand the second part of this, of carrying the big stick. So, speaking softly is part of his defense, but carrying the big stick is the other part of the defense. Verse 4 the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So Paul starts by saying we walk in the flesh, you know, we are human, but we walk not according to the flesh for this reason, because we have these weapons, and these weapons are divine. So this is where Paul's going all TR on, or, or maybe, maybe, you know, Teddy Roosevelt was going Paul. I don't know how it worked, but Paul's basically saying, we walk meekly, but yeah, we have weapons that you are clueless about. And so he's saying, we walk softly, we walk meekly, but we don't walk meekly. We don't walk softly from a defeated position. Oh, please don't understand. There's a big stick and we're not afraid to use it. Actually, we have overwhelming firepower. And then he goes on to define that. He says our weapons have a divine power to, number one, destroy strongholds, which includes destroying arguments and opinions. And then secondly, an authority and an ability to take captive every thought to obey Christ. But all of that is just a way for Paul to say, listen... I carry a big stick. Yes, I speak softly, but I carry the big stick. And the big stick is, of course, the gospel. And the big stick is what happens when weak people swing the gospel stick. The gospel destroys strongholds. Not just, you know, eats away at them, but it destroys these strongholds, one of the strongholds was implied in this is the beliefs of the super apostles. That sense that the super apostles, their persuasiveness, their charisma, the ideas and the way they communicated and their eloquence and the way that they were able to get a hold of people. There's a sense where the gospel just comes in and blows that apart. But not just the, just the super apostles, but also within the Corinthians, these immature Corinthians where there were these entrenched patterns of thinking that imprisoned them, that, that, that place where they go, where they always feel like, you know, life is, life is against me. And when things happen, it always seems to be like I'm being victimized by my circumstances or by my past or by other people. You know, that place that can just be a stronghold in the mind of somebody that doesn't enable them to move forward. Paul's saying the gospel breaks in and blows that apart. Self-righteousness, false doctrine, condemnation, pride. Those worldly ideas that become fortified positions that lock us down, that we retreat into. Paul's saying those ideas, the gospel attacks them to rescue us. And this is not something that for the majority of us, we simply have to intellectually affirm because this has been our experience. You remember where you were. I mean, do you remember back then? Before you were a Christian, you remember what you believed? Some of the crazy places your mind went? Some of the things that were just, you look back and you think, could I have been any more immature? I mean, I was a total control freak. I needed to be God of my life. But by the grace of God, the gospel broke in and tore down this this self-idolatry that said, I and only I will be Lord of my own life. And took captive that viewpoint, tore it down, because conversion meant for me that I had to live under the rule of another, that I could no longer live under the government of myself alone. It meant appointing or allowing another Lord to be appointed in my life and for me to become a servant. What about you? You know, what about you? What, what arguments or lofty opinions did the gospel destroy? Did the gospel detonate in order to bring you to Christ? See, that's what's at work in our life. That's what's at work in the power of the words of the gospel. And it's good to remember that when you think about some of the strange ideas and the people that you're trying to reach right now. I mean, do you have a teenager, by the way? Stranger ideas have never inhabited any beings on earth than a teenager with a live imagination in the 21st century under the influence of the internet and with access to the internet but but here god is reminding us that there's a power that's larger than the internet there's a power that's more potent that even entrenched sins can't seem to resist And so Paul says the weapon that we wield has this divine power to clear through the fog, to tear down the opposition, to free us from the tyranny of what we once served because it happened for each one of us. And so we carry, Paul says, we carry this big stick and we can draw great encouragement from that. Now, we've heard about the charges we've heard about the defense speak softly carry the big stick i want to go back to the first part of that defense on speaking softly and i want to use that to apply because i felt impressed by the spirit of god to say you know to just press beneath the surface to pop up the hood on this idea of speaking softly and just let go a little deeper so here's my question that i want to begin with is would your kids would your spouse the people that work with you and around you, would your parents say you are one who speaks softly? And if the answer to that is no, I want to look together at some things that might, well, just what growth might look like if we were growing and speaking softly. Here's three points. Here's the first. Listening more than talking. Listening more than talking. You know, people think that, that selfies were something that kind of started with the iPhone, something we do with our iPhone, but selfie has, has been around as long as human beings have been around. Selfie is the first condition we are, we are conceived into. It's a part of our DNA. It, you know, that, that way, there's something about the way our, our mind operates apart from Christ that whenever there's something going on, we want to be in the center of the picture. It's the selfie. You know, it's like we're taking a picture of life, we want to be in the center. We want to be there. We want to locate ourselves in the center. So the, the existence of selfies is simply the outward manifestation of something that's been going on throughout history. It's just a little bit more obvious. The selfie is why we need a savior. The selfie is the state that we were converted from. The selfie is what spills out of our heart, because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So one of the best ways to evaluate whether we're speaking softly is to kind of look at the selfie thing. And one way to look at that is to look specifically at what I like to call the talk-listening ratio, the talk-listening ratio ratio and I'm drawing that specifically from James chapter 1 where James says quote listen to this let every person be quick to hear slow to speak slow to anger quick to hear slow to speak slow to anger so if we're applying this in the broadest sense in the simplest sense what it means is that the average conversation that I engage in with other people should be weighted On the side of me listening, not talking. Which means, because I tend to be selfie, I tend to want to put myself in the middle, I tend to want to talk about myself. There's something the Spirit of God must do that orients, that changes my whole orientation to conversation, where I'm all of a sudden taking an active interest in someone else, where I'm moving away from selfie and toward them, where I'm learning how to ask questions. You know, if you're about selfie, you never learn how to ask questions. You'll you'll never learn how to ask questions. For some people, being, being their friends is like being a a moderator at a political debate, I mean, we, you know, we've got all these political debates going on, Fox News, CNN, you know, the role of the moderator. The, the moderator sits there, and the moderator asks question, questions, which then provides a platform for the person, for the, the guy running for office or the woman running for office, to basically talk about themselves, talk about their success, their achievements, their competence, their, their past. And we find as we listen to them, but man, one question can unleash this inexhaustible vocabulary for themselves. It's like it's amazing that from one question you can talk about yourself so much. That's what it's like sometimes in relationships with folks. What the gospel does is the gospel flips that upside down and says, no, you're in relationship to be able to serve others, to love others, to take an active interest in others to find out about them. Don't make it about just exegeting yourself. That's, a, that's what the selfie does. It's about, it's about getting to know other people, listening more than talking, being quick to hear, slow to speak. Listening more than talking. So that's the first point. What does it look like to grow in speaking softly? Number two, growing more confident in admitting your weakness. Growing more confident in admitting your weakness. So in 2 Corinthians, Paul is talking very freely about where he's weak. We started this in chapter 1. Do you remember what he was saying in chapter 1 about his affliction in Asia? He was so utterly burdened beyond his strength that he despaired of life itself. So Paul's like right out of the gate in chapter 1 talking about this time where he was even considering, hey, should I end my life? What, what's going on here? Or at least he's so despairing, so depressed that he, he wonders whether it's worth living. And that's just the beginning of this chronicle of him talking about these areas of, of weakness. Do we do that? Are we growing more comfortable doing that? You know, there are times in our pastor's meetings where one of the guys will say the word Beyoncé. And Beyoncé is a, is a code word for Dave is an idiot. That's, that's the code word. Beyoncé is the code for Dave is an idiot because shortly after arriving here, I made a passing reference in a sermon. Some of you are smiling because you remember this. And you're thinking, yeah, we thought you were an idiot too. That was so funny. Um, where, where I made a reference to the singer Beyoncé, and I called her Beyonce. And honestly, to this moment, I have no idea why I did that. Now, Josh was kind enough kind enough to have to enjoy the entertaining value of that so much. He didn't get to me between the services, so I did it in the second service as well. <laughs> didn't even realize that I did it in the second service until they informed me on Tuesday where then I immediately realized, oh my gosh, you look like an idiot. And so I responded the way I tend to respond when I look like like an idiot, and that was that I immediately went on the offensive and tried to pass it off as them, not knowing the proper French pronunciation (laughs) for Beyonce, which is, of course, Beyonce. And they weren't buying that at all, so I immediately switched over to the fact that, hey, is it my fault that I'm not as carnally engaged in pop culture and that you guys all know the names of pop culture singers, but me over here just praying and seeking Jesus, I don't know. Is it Beyonce? Is it Beyonce? I don't know. (laughs) That didn't go over too well either. But the reality is that part of being Dave is kind of having a growing catalog of these times where I can say stupid things with a microphone in my hand. And I, and I realize that the harder it is for me to admit that, the more I am a flesh walker. Because honestly, I want to be seen as strong Strong in the flesh, that's what I want. I want to be that unbroken God. You, you read that book or, or see the movie and he's holding it up and he's trying to break him and the Japanese command, commandant wants to break him, but, but you know, he just stands there and he's holding up. I will be unbroken. I'm a man, I'm torn down, but you will not break. That's who I want to be. Uh, you know I want to be perceived as competent, as intelligent, as unflawed, omnicompetent. You know, the, uh, the lead, so I do part-time Four Oaks, and part-time I serve Sojourner Network, a church planner organization. And uh, Sojourner Network has this social media site called The City that we use for the lead pastors. And it's a place where we can ask questions, we can offer documents, ask advice, give advice. It's a really good, great tool. About three months ago, we were asked to provide a biography uh, for ourselves to put on there. And, and you know, I mean, those of you that have to do biographies, you know what typical biographies are like. It's about schools, schools you went to, roles you have, books you've written, or publications you have. And, and uh, what's the best way I can do to make myself look good? is. And I began thinking, because I saw one other guy do this. And I, when we were in the middle of this series and I began thinking, How would I write a biography according to 2 Corinthians? How would I write a biography in light of all the things that we're learning in 2 Corinthians? So here's what I, I came up with. Let me read it to you. I'm not particularly imaginative or some kind of big change agent. I have a remarkable wife, but we've experienced some challenges as parents. I've lost about 200 pounds over the last 20 years, primarily by gaining and losing the same 10 pounds. I like praise too much, and I wish I used my time better because I want to read more than I do. Ministry over the last 30 years has delivered incredible and undeserved joys, not to ma- mention unimaginable sorrow. Whatever bitter taste there may be has made Christ indescribably sweet to me. So I posted that about three months ago. And it's just really my feeble attempt to apply this book that we're studying and think about what does this mean for life and what would it mean to speak softly even when it comes to something like a a bio. So it's listening more than talking. It's growing more confident in admitting your weaknesses. And lastly, It's being less annoyed by others. It's being less annoyed by others. You know, there's this phrase that we dish. You you ever hear yourself saying, oh, you're so annoying. Oh, she's so annoying. My boss is so annoying. This is so annoying. I'm so annoyed. You know, annoyed is the sound of other people like raining on our parade. And we tend to think people annoying us as something about them oh, they're so annoying, which says everything about them and absolutely nothing about me because I'm just this angel living on earth, being a blessing to everybody, and then people always annoy me. You know, like we are the universal standard for wise behavior holding court on these other people that are whining around us and because what, what we don't realize is that what annoys us can expose us. What annoys us can expose us. And what it exposes is the lack of love at times we can have. You know, it's interesting, this afternoon, check this out, First Corinthians 13, love is not only patient and kind, but love, love is not irritable, it says. Love is not irritable. See, we tend to think that people's behavior says something about them, not realizing that oftentimes it points right back at us. It might just say that we love comfort more than we love people. We love comfort more than we love having to put up with your idiosyncrasies, which, by the way, are not sins. They might just be endemic to who you are or part of your flaws, but I don't want to have to deal with it because I'm a Christian. You know, the fact that people disrupt us, the fact that we we love our stuff or that we're just intolerant. Interesting Proverbs, Proverbs 12, right this time, 12, verse 16, says, a fool shows his annoyance at once. A fool shows his annoyance at once. What does it mean if the first thing I say is, oh, he's so annoying? Oh, I'm a fool. A fool says, his, shows his annoyance at once. So it's, it's listening more than talking. It's growing more confident in admitting our weaknesses, and it's less, being less easily annoyed by others. Those are just simple ways to speak softly. You may have a dozen other ideas. These are just the ones I thought of. But I guess I want to leave you with the question of where is God calling you to step forward in speaking softly today? Because wherever that is, whatever is occurring to you, I want to encourage you to know that, that that's an area right now where the Spirit of God is at work, because there's no way that Satan would inspire you to change in that area. That's an area where the gospel is already at work in your life, pushing something forward that you might see it and bring greater glory to God. That you might remember, even as we close out this morning, that that when it comes to change, when it comes to mission, when it comes to even the people that we're trying to reach with the gospel, we can remember, verse 4, that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. That comes right from the God that we love, right from the God that we serve, right from the God whose word we believe. Let's pray.